good to be gathered together this morning so that we can hear the word of God. And uh, as uh, Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John, so that we can consume the manna that comes from heaven. It is not a temporary manna that left the people of Israel still hungry and wanting for more, but rather it is the manna that from heaven that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so let's feed upon him in our hearts by faith, uh, by reading the word as well as hearing it preached. And to that end, if you would please open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and this morning we have before us verses 9 through 14. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, as we peer into your word, we pray that you would give unto us the eyes of faith if we do not have them, that you would further enlarge in the eyes of our faith for we who have the, that, those eyes, O oh Lord, but that we would recognize that you give them unto us freely by your grace, and that the only way that we can see is in the light of the revelation of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would shine the light of your Son upon the sin-darkened corners of our hearts, that you would remove the distractions, that you would convict us of sin, that you would fill our hearts with with greater faith, with hope, and with love, not only for you, O Lord, but also for one another. We pray, O Lord, that you would do this through the reading and the preaching of your word, which you have told us 
our means of grace. And so we pray that to this end, that you would not only sanctify, not only purify, not only uh, conform us more and more to the image of your Son, but, O Lord, that you would glorify yourself in our midst. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. When sin comes between two people, whether it's two friends or perhaps with, uh, within the members uh, among a household, there can often be animosity, uh, hurt feelings, and anger. Friends who were once close uh, no longer are willing to trust each other, and where there was once openness and vulnerability, there's now uh, usually walls of indifference and distance. But no greater alienation exists between God and fallen sinners, fallen human beings. The scriptures pull no punches when it describes the nature of our alienation from God as we stand as fallen creatures, as those who have rebelled against him. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, and that before we were in Christ, we followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, and that the spirit that was at once at work in the sons of disobedience only by the grace of God is no longer at work in us. He says that we once carried out the passions of our flesh, of the desire of the body and the mind. And this is, I think, perhaps one of the most stunning lines that he says in this whole description as to who we are as fallen sinners when he says that by nature, by nature, we are children of wrath. And what he means is, think about this, what is something by nature other than the very characteristic that defines what it is? A a rock by nature is hard. Steel by nature is hard. Well, in this case, we can say that what Paul is communicating to us is that by nature, apart from the grace of Christ, we are utterly alienated from him. We are utterly alienated from him. And because of that, he says that by nature, we are children of wrath. In other words, what defines us is our sin. And because we are sinful, alienated from God, we rightly fall under the judgment and the wrath of God. And in fact, Paul says as much in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, when he says that for by now the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, this stands in stark contrast to the intimacy, the fellowship, and the familiarity that Adam and Eve had with God in the Garden of Eden. We could say that it was, at least up until this point, uh, the greatest manifestation of fellowship and communion because they had the privilege of dwelling in the presence of God. At this particular point in, we wouldn't say redemptive history, we would say in pre-redemptive history, they were not by nature children of wrath, utterly alienated from God, but rather they were by nature righteous and holy. And therefore, because of this righteousness and holiness, they could dwell in communion and fellowship with God. But Adam's sin ruined it all. And as a consequence of his sin, God established a barrier and he exiled, 
He exiled Adam and Eve from his presence. John Owen, famous 17th century Reformed theologian, says, By nature, since the entrance of sin, no man has had communion with God. He is light. We are darkness. And what communion has light with darkness? He is life. We are dead. He is love. We are enmity. And what agreement can there be between us? We're alienated apart from Christ. He is light. We are darkness. He is life. We are death. He is love. We are enmity. But blessedly, because of the grace of God in Christ, God has opened a way back that we might have communion and fellowship with him once again. And he's done so through his son, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the outpouring of the Spirit. And this is what the author of the Hebrews sets before us this morning, is he shows us how it is that Christ has opened up that way once again to fellowship and communion with the triune God. And this is the fellowship and the communion and the intimacy of the relationship that he wanted to ensure that his recipients did not run away from, that they didn't ca- wouldn't cast it aside, that they wouldn't reject it by trying to go back to the Old Testament, back to the old ways, back to the provisions of the Mosaic Covenant. And so what we want to do first is we want to give thought and we want to see, go back to the Garden of Eden and try to understand the nature of that intimate fellowship and communion that Adam and Eve first had with God in the Garden of Eden. And once we understand that, then we can begin to appreciate how God began to open the way to renew the bonds of fellowship and communion with his people, first in the desert tabernacle, and then ultimately by the person and work of Christ, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at Eden, then we'll look at the tabernacle, and then we'll look at what the author has to say about the work of Christ. So let's give thought and reflect upon the nature of God's fellowship and communion that he had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we could say that the very centerpiece of the creation, his crowning Uh, his crowning piece, the very crown jewel of the entire creation, were the only things in the entire creation that bore his image. And we can say that that was Adam and Eve. Unlike any of the other creatures that God made, man alone bore his image. You know, the psalmist reflects upon this in Psalm 8, verses 3 and following. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You know, think of the infinite transcendent nature of God and think of how insignificant we are as creatures. We could say in one sense that we are so infinitesimal in comparison with the grandeur, the glory and the majesty of God. And yet God deigned to impress upon Of all creatures so insignificant, human beings, he impressed upon us his divine image. And that we are a reflection of his majesty and of his glory. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
This is a privilege and a status that no other creature in the entire creation possesses. And we can even see the special nature and God's approval and even uh, pronouncement of blessing over the creation of human beings because on each of the successive days of creation, God would uh, declare it, he would create it, and then he would say, it is good. But on the sixth day, with the creation of Adam and Eve, with the creation of his image bearers, he did not merely say, this is good, but he said, This is very good. This is very good. This is unique among all of the days of creation. God crowned his creation with his image bearers, but in addition to creating us as his image bearers, he not only impressed his image upon us, but he created a place in which he could meet with us. He created a place where we would enjoy fellowship and communion with him. You know, how many of us have special places in our homes? I can remember as a child growing up that uh, my brother and I were really not allowed in my parents' bedroom. I may or may not have told the small people in my house yesterday, you're not allowed in my closet. (laughs) Stay out of there. That's my stuff. There are special places. Well, in this case, we can say that God established sacred space in the Garden of Eden where he would come to meet with the crowning piece of his creation, where he would come to meet with Adam and Eve. And we can say in this respect that the Garden of Eden was no ordinary garden. And in fact, all signs, all of the signs in the Genesis narrative point to the fact that it was not simply a garden, but rather we can say it was the first Temple. It was the first earthly temple that God created in order to meet with his people. You know, we think about, think about the nature of sacred space uh, in our culture. We have all types of sacred space. Space that is dedicated and devoted to a specific purpose. We see this in, in the secular culture. You, you can go and see a stadium. A stadium is empty. And for the most part, the only time that this sacred space is used is for a sporting event, for a game. And it's only then and there that you find people flocking to it for that special occasion. You could say the same thing uh, about uh, the sacred space of, of, of this very sanctuary. It lies empty for the most part, unless it's for the sacred purpose of gathering together as the people of God, as God's dwelling place, to worship him. It's devoted to that very purpose. This was the nature of the Garden of Eden. Like subsequent temples, the garden was in the east. The garden, like other temples in the scriptures, like Sinai uh, and Solomon's temple, uh, the garden was atop on, on the top of a mountain. And we know that it was on the top of a mountain. Why? Because the, the water flowed from the rivers and water goes from higher elevations to lower elevations. Like the rivers that flew or that flowed out of Ezekiel's temple vision where the water rushed forth uh, from beneath the threshold. And the living waters that are said to flow uh, in streams that come out of the new Jerusalem, 
So rivers of, of water flowed out of the Garden of Eden. There were an abundance of trees in the Garden of Eden. And this explains as to why later in the Solomonic Temple, there were engraved palm trees on the interior walls of the temple. Those, those engraved palm trees hearkened back the collective memory of the priests to God's first temple in the Garden of Eden. Like subsequent temples, the Garden of Eden was filled with precious stones and metals, gold and precious stones. Uh, There were cherubim in the Garden of Eden, just as in the subsequent temples, uh, guarding the Ark of the Covenant on the temple veil that separated the inner from the outer temple, the Holy of Holies from the outer uh, portion of the temple. But most importantly, the one fact that makes the Garden of Eden the first earthly temple, in spite of all of these other characteristics, is the presence of God. When God told Moses... When he was tending the sheep and Moses saw the burning bush and he approached it, it was the very presence of God that said, take off your, your shoes for you are standing on holy ground. It's the presence of God that made Eden sacred space and it made it the first earthly temple. And so God not only created his image bearers, but he created this temple where he would meet and commune and fellowship with his people, with Adam and Eve. But we tragically know what happened in that Edenic Holy of Holies. When we hear the glorious words of the psalmist, I can't help but think of a sense of loss. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And yet Adam and Eve squandered that glory. They spurned the fellowship and the communion that they had with God. And so when God arrived in the garden for judgment, he cast Adam and Eve out of his presence. And to ensure that they could not enter back into what amounts to the Holy of Holies, God placed cherubim at the gates of the Garden of Eden. And there those cherubim were with their fearsome flaming swords, ensuring that no sinful human being would be allowed back into the presence of God. God exiled Adam and Eve from his presence. But blessedly, blessedly, God gave them hope, even on the heels of the judgment. He promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And he covered their nakedness by slaughtering an animal to clothe them, which was symbolic of covering their sins, covering their shame, and covering their guilt. So he exiled them, but not without hope. These were signs that God would one day again reopen communion and fellowship with his people. Which brings us to our second point, which is the desert tabernacle, which we could say is one of the largest signs of fulfillment that God was going to reopen the way of fellowship and communion with his people. Even though Eden was long gone, we have to remember that this does not mean that God ceased to dwell among his people. 
God redeemed his people by calling Abraham and preserving them and his descendants in Egypt. He called Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he instructed Moses uh, to make a tent of meeting, a tabernacle, uh, so that he could once again dwell in the midst of his people, so that he could fellowship among them. And in fact, in the language that comes from the book of Leviticus, he says, in the midst of this tabernacle, I will walk among you which hearkens back to God walking in the Garden of Eden. And so the author of Hebrews in the first few verses here of chapter 9 rehearses the details of the tabernacle and the the furniture uh, and the various uh, pieces that were there. He mentions the tent, the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence, as well as the altar of incense. But the most important element of the tabernacle that he mentions is the separation between the inner and the outer tabernacle. He says in verses 3 and following, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or we would say the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies, he says, there was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God, And upon the ark were two cherubim. And at these cherubim had their wings positioned in such a way as to overshadow the ark. But we want to note that these were not the only cherubim present in the Holy of Holies. There were two upon the ark. But the author speaks of the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. Recall from the book of Exodus that God uh, instructed Moses to make this curtain and upon this curtain to embroider cherubim upon it. The cherubim on the curtain recalled the cherubim guarding the gates of Eden with their flaming sword, just as The cherubim guarded the entrance to the gate of the Garden of Eden, the very first Holy of Holies. They guarded it to prevent anyone from entering in. So the cherubim on the curtain reminded the people and the high priest that they could not enter into the presence of God. And the author gives us the one exception which was the high priest. The high priest, he alone was allowed to go past the curtain. He alone was allowed to go past the cherubim, if you will, with their flaming sword. And so long as he had done the proper sacrifices from the Day of Atonement on Leviticus chapter 16, then the Lord would not strike him dead. But in ancient Judaism... They record the procedures of the Day of Atonement that so much so is that they were fearful that the high priest would indeed be struck dead, so much so that they tied a rope around his ankle so that if he did fall dead, they could pull him out without having to go in. 
And so this is why the author reminds the recipients of his letter here in verses 6 and 7 that only the high priest could go past those cherubim, to go past the curtain. And this is one of the most important statements, I think, in all of the chapter, in verse 8, when he says this as it pertains to the curtain. He says, by this, that is the curtain... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing. He says, as long as that curtain is up, as long as that curtain is up, it means that the way into the holy of holies is obstructed. It's blocked. You know, the other night I was coming back from one of my son, my son's football games, and it was in Vicksburg, and so the phone said to, to get off the 20 and to get onto the, to, the, to the trace. And as I got ready to pull off onto the trace, I couldn't. Why? Cop cars, as far as the eye could see, somebody had crashed and done something, don't know what. So I had to look over my shoulder, make sure there was nobody coming, and pull out and get back on the 20 and go an alternate route. Those cherubim on that curtain was a wall of obstruction. Except the problem with the cherubim, unlike my small road obstacle, is that there was no detour. I could take a detour and find an alternate route. There was no alternate route. There's no detour. As long as that curtain stood up, it was a reminder that the cherubim would strike you down if you tried to enter past them and tried to get into the Holy of Holies to renew communion and fellowship with God. Why? Because your sin is an obstruction. Your sin alienates you from God. You are by nature a child of wrath. The author goes on to write in verses 8 and following, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He says this curious statement there in verse 9 when he says that the the curtain is symbolic for the present age. What does that mean? Well, what he means is, is that as long as the curtain stands, it separates us from God's throne. And if it separates from God's throne, then it means that we cannot commune and fellowship with God the way that Adam and Eve did where quite literally they beheld the face of God. The standing curtain is symbolic, he says, for the present age. What is the present age? It's the age of Adam's fallen kingdom. It's the age that is marked by the works of the flesh. It is the age that is colored by sin. It is the age that says that we are alienated from God. We are his image bearers, but we are fallen image bearers. We are rebellious image bearers. We are disobedient image bearers. And therefore, we cannot enter into the presence of God. Now, the people might respond, you know, here in his audience, uh, that he, that's reading this letter, that's receiving this letter. In fact, we might even respond similarly 
Well, they would say, well, what about the sacrifices? Don't those sacrifices remedy the alienation between God and his people? What about the high priest? He was allowed to enter in once a year. And yet, the author says that the high priest could only enter in but once a year. But even then, this degree of interaction paled in comparison with the intimacy and the fellowship that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Remember last week when we talked about this, that the high priest had to go in with incense and that the incense was to create literally a walking smoke screen so that the high priest would never gaze directly upon the throne of God. So holy is God that the high priest was not even allowed to look upon his throne, let alone his glorious presence. And so he had to have this smoke screen in front of him to protect and avert his gaze from the presence of God. That pales in comparison to the intimacy and the fellowship that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Moreover, notice what the author says in verse 9, that these sacrifices could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Because what he is ultimately saying here is that the sacrifices of the Old Testament provided a ritual purity but that those sacrifices in and of themselves only had value insofar as they cast the eyes of faith upon the one true sacrifice, the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Only to the degree that those worshipers saw those sacrifices and placed their faith in Christ could they enjoy and know the forgiveness of sins. But the sacrifices in and of themselves were useless. Do you hear the author's point? He's saying, you want to turn away from Christ, the very one to whom these sacrifices point. And instead of looking ultimately to Christ, which is where the Old Testament saint would have fixed the eyes of his faith, you want to look back to the sacrifices and you are failing to look at the one to whom they point and in and of themselves, they're useless, they're meaningless. They cannot cleanse you. They cannot purify you. They cannot remove your sin. And this is why he says in verse 10 that they were imposed until the time of reformation. Until, if you will, the reconfiguration. Until Jesus Christ would come and bring about a new age a new creation, a new order. And so this is what brings us to our third and final point, which is the blood of Christ. The author turns the eyes of our faith to the work of Christ, who he says did not enter into a temple made with human hands. He didn't enter into the Solomonic temple, the Herodian temple, or the desert tabernacle but rather the heavenly temple in the heavenly holy of holies, the true pattern upon which these earthly copies were made. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He did not offer sacrificial animals like the high priest. 
Moreover, he did not have to enter in year after year after year after year, but once, he says, once and for all, he entered in the heavenly holy of holies by his own blood. We know, of course, that this is why Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. Goats and calves only provide a ritual purification and they had to be repeated on a daily basis. The high priest had to offer his sacrifices once a year to ensure God's presence in Israel's midst. Why did this sacrificial system fail? Because the people were just simply going through the motions. They thought that these procedures in and of themselves would cleanse them of their sin and they thought in many cases that it was licensed to sin and God said no and he like casting Adam and Eve out of the garden, exiling them from his presence, exiled the people from his presence, just as we read this morning at the end of the book of Jeremiah. But not so with the once-for-all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When Jesus uttered those words in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. It was not only his own work that was finished, but it was the weight of sin and death and the alienation that separated us from God. It too was finished. Verses 13 and 14, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The subtext here is, how on earth could you think about going back? Unlike the blood of, the, uh, goats of, uh, uh, the blood of goats and of calves, Jesus' blood does indeed can cleanse us from sin, from guilt and shame once and for all. There is no need for more sacrifices. And unlike the sacrifices of the high priest in the Old Testament, there was a stunning result of Christ's completed work. Immediately on the heels of the completion of Christ's work upon the cross, when he gave up his spirit, an amazing event transpired. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 51, And behold, the temple curtain of the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Those cherubim that stood guarding the way into the Holy of Holies, those cherubim upon the curtain of the temple, whether in the desert tabernacle, the Solomonic temple, or the Herodian temple, they were taken away. The curtain was not worn out, and it didn't wear out from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom. And this is a curtain in the Herodian temple that was some 70 feet high. There's no chance that this was some sort of natural uh, phenomenon that it just wore out. It was divinely torn from top to bottom and it was cast open to signal the fact that the new creation was upon us. That the way back into the presence of God was now open. But it's not that we as sinful human beings somehow scaled the heights 
of heaven and somehow entered into the heavenly holy of holies, but rather Christ, through his work, brought the holy of holies of heaven down to us, and he opened the door to us. If we simply embrace him by faith, we can once again know of an intimacy, of a fellowship, and a communion far greater than Adam and Eve ever had. Their fellowship was temporary because their condition was, uh, was mutable. They could change, they could fall, they could be exiled. Because of God's faithfulness in Christ, we know of no such fears. God indwells us. The Holy of Holies is within us because of the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit that Christ has poured out upon his people. Where two or more are gathered, there I am in your presence, says Christ. The way of fellowship is open, the way of communion is open, and all you have to do is bow your head in prayer and by faith, through the power and presence of the Spirit, enter into the heavenly holy of holies. Why on earth would we ever want to go back? Why would his Jewish Christians want to repair the torn curtain, reinstitute the sacrifices, sacrifices that cannot cleanse or purify the conscience from sin? Why would they once again want to dwell east of Eden instead of enter into the holy presence of God, undefiled, righteous, pure by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world? By God's grace, beloved in Christ, we are no longer children of wrath. And God's just condemnation no longer hangs over us. Christ has opened the way back into the presence of God. And the cherubim, with their menacing swords, no longer terrorize us. We have not climbed to heaven to enter into the Holy of Holies, but rather Christ has brought it down to us. And through our union with Christ, we are with him, seated with him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly holy of holies. And through the Spirit, Christ indwells us all. Not only must we heed the author's advice and not withdraw from Christ, but we must treasure this renewed communion and fellowship that we have with our triune God. As John Owen says, and truly for sinners to have fellowship with God, the infinite holy God, is an astonishing dispensation. In the simplest words, what the author is saying is, he's saying, enter in. Enter in and fellowship and commune with our triune God. Give thanks that we have a communion greater than Adam and Eve knew in the garden and one that still has greater blessings to bestow still yet. Draw nigh unto God through prayer. Draw nigh unto God through his word and rejoice that the way into God's presence has been opened by the shed blood of Christ by whom we have been purified from our dead works so that we can serve the living God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have opened the way once again into your presence that those cherubim with the menacing sword no longer stands in our way, that our sin no longer causes us to hunch over beneath its heavy weight and burden. But rather in Christ, 
we can approach your your presence, your holiness, your righteousness, your majesty, your transcendent glory by laying down our burdens at the foot of the cross. What wonderful manner of love is this that we should be called children of God and indeed you welcome us into your presence through Christ and through his sacrifice. We ask, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts with praise and worship, that we would treasure this renewed communion and fellowship, that we would regularly spend time in your presence, that we would remember, O Lord, that we dwell quorum Deo, that we dwell eternally in your presence starting now, that it would shape us, that it would mold us, that you would conform us more and more to the image of Christ, and that we would seek shelter in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ the only means by which we can be freed from the guilt, burden, and shame of sin. We pray that you would fill our hearts with a faith that rests in Christ, that accepts his work, and receives the mercy you have given us through your Spirit. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.